This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. Our text is going to, if you want to take your Bible, it's going to be from Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter. God says here, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. I want you to think about that picture. These poor people that have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years in the same pair of clothes <laughs> are now going to cross over this river and he says, you're going to go in and you're going to possess this land. These nations greater and mightier than you. We read that and we think, what application can I make to such a statement as that? First of all, I want to tell you, you're in the kingdom of God right now. If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, according to the book of Acts, that he added to the kingdom daily such as should be saved. So you become a part of this great kingdom, and here we are all around us in this life, and we're facing enemies everywhere we turn, on every side. And we look and we say, they're greater and mightier than I am. How am I ever going to do this? And we are to possess this land. Now, we don't do it militantly. But you and I are supposed to plant that seed of faith, that seed of the gospel, the word of God sown into people's heart. And then that word sprouts up and takes root in people's hearts. And their lives are changed. Nations are changed. Communities are changed. And the possession becomes God's. Let's read on. He says, you're going to face a people, great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who could stand before the children of Anak? Now, we would consider these people, these Anakims, uh, giants. I saw a man in Walmart the other day. And I looked at him and I said, my goodness, I'd hate to have to fight him. He was huge. Then I got to thinking about it. He's not but 6'8". <laughs> he weighs 400 pounds, so what? Look at the Anakims. We look at a man today that's 7 foot, Shaquille O'Neal, and we say, that man's a giant. No, he was little to the Anakims. He was a little man. These people were so big that God called them giants. They were massive and nobody could face them in battle. God says you're going to face them in battle and you're going to stand before them and you're going to take them and you're going to possess this land. Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord hath said unto thee. The children of Israel went in there and they did that. They possessed that land. It became their land. It was a kingdom that God had set up on this earth that was a type of the kingdom that we live in today. We are the anti-type of this. And that is the church of Christ, the kingdom of God living here in this forlorn community, in this forlorn world of sin where the boundaries and the foundations that God have set, people have crossed and they have decided that they're not relevant to them. But you and I know they're relevant because we live in the kingdom. We have to face battles every day in our life. I decided a while back uh, when I was at home, we, we do uh, series type studies. Right now we're in contextual studies. But this particular time, a few, a few months back, we were doing... Uh, various, various series, and I decided to talk about some of the things that were the Anakims in our life. You, you have them. 
These children of Anak, they're giants in your life. They seem almost insurmountable. How in the world will I ever face these things? And how can I ever overcome these things? And some of these things that we have to face, fear. You have to face fear, don't you? 2020 came and everybody got scared. That's an Anak, a child of Anak. It's a giant that you face. And I'll tell you, that fear in your life will take you and it will paralyze you because it's so big. Another one is discouragement. Uh, have you ever faced discouragement in your life? Discouragement, in my mind, is, is, a, is kin to fear. Uh, because if you take it, it's discourage or without courage. And when I get discouraged, I lose the fervor to continue. I've seen people all my life in the church become discouraged. They become discouraged at any number of things. I'll tell you one of the things that really discourages us is each other. Our failures with each other. We become discouraged. Children see the failures of their parents. They see the failures of the preachers and the elders and the deacons, and they become discouraged. These are all battles that we face. Worry, loneliness, guilt and shame, temptation, anger, resentment, depression, procrastination, failure. The list could go on and on and on. It's endless of the things that we face. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about one of these items on the list that maybe you haven't considered to be a great part of your child of Adak that you face or this great enemy in your life. But it is. And you face it and you experience it quite often, more often than you really care to. And that's guilt and shame. The guilt and shame that we experience. Guilt and shame will do the same thing for us many times that fear will do. Particularly shame. And I want to say at the offset, guilt and shame, they seem like they're the same thing. But they're not. They are different. Both of them were born in the, king, in the Garden of Eden. There would be no guilt, there would be no shame if there was no failure in the Garden of Eden. And we see guilt and shame, both of them, uh, being born in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned and, uh, against God. And the shame that they experienced was so much that they would hide from God. And they also experienced for the first time in their life, and mankind experienced for the first time, guilt or condemnation before God. And I believe, brethren, that you and I have faced both of these obstacles in our life. We continue to face them. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how God expects us to handle these things of guilt and shame. One of the songs that has uh, come out in uh, the last few years, it's one of my favorite songs. I think it's probably the greatest hymn, modern hymn of the 21st uh, century, is In Christ Alone. And uh, the lyricist in the song had some insight, I believe. I'd like to share with you, and you probably sing this over and over uh, here oftentimes. But often I've found that when we sing a song, we may not be, as uh, Brother Marlon Cole says, you can sing a lie as easy as you can tell a lie. And, and that's the truth because if we're not singing with the spirit and the understanding, then we might not be able to uh, be understanding what the lyricist is saying. And then we can say in our hearts, amen to this song as we sing it and sing it with the spirit and with the understanding. The lyricist says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. We sing that song. We need to understand what we're saying. And if we, could, if we can sing this song with the spirit and the understanding, it's going to reveal some things. This cornerstone, we talked about the cornerstone of Jesus. 
The solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. What a song. <laughs> what lyrics and what biblical truth is there. I want you to pay particular attention to this line, when strivings Cease. When striving cease. What striving, what are you striving with in your life? What are you working with and what is bothering you? My comforter. Is Christ your comforter? The next verse, the third verse actually of this song, uh, probably my favorite, but, uh, and, the reason it's relevant to the lesson tonight, the lyricist understands something about guilt. He says, no guilt in life. Can you say that? No fear in death. Can you say that? When you sing that song, are you singing it with the understanding? No guilt in life. Is that even possible? Does God intend for us to live our life free of guilt? Can it happen? Or is this just a fairy tale that the lyricist has made up? Is this something that he's trying to say this was some far off distant plan, but it really hasn't happened? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about no guilt in life and no fear in death. This, these thoughts will either do one of two things for you, I believe. And the thoughts from the scripture. They will either give you great comfort or they will stir within you a longing, I hope. For surely, and you and I both would like to put down that child of Anak of guilt. Guilt is such a terrible thing that we have to deal with. And many people choose not to deal with it because they prefer not to deal with a terrible thing. John 3.17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The verse before that, of course, as you know, is John 3.16. Everyone can say that verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most people do not know this verse. <laughs> For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. I, I used to read that verse and I would think I don't understand that verse at all because when I see Jesus, the perfect Jesus, I feel condemned. I do. When I see him and I see my failures and I try to cast my life beside of Jesus' life, I see my weakness. I see how frail I am, how awful I am. And then I think about my failures and I think about how I have sinned in my life and how I've let my people down, my family down, my community down. I married one of the best women in the world. I've let her down. But the scripture says that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Do you know why and how that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world? We were already condemned <laughs> before he ever came. His purpose was not to condemn us. Because we were already condemned. Our life was already a mess. 
Mankind had allowed sin to enter this world. And now we're being raised by sinful parents and we're being taught by sinful teachers. We're being preached to by sinful preachers. And we marry sinful people. And we stand condemned. So Jesus didn't have to come to condemn us because we were already condemned. The sentence had already been passed. And the wages of sin had already been expressed over and over and over again. If you'll read the old prophets of the Old Testament, the principle of the wages of sin is death is stated over and over again in many different ways. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, he states this. He said, oh, that I had a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and be from them, for they all be treacherous and adulterous men. You think about that. He's talking about his family. <laughs> He's talking about his church people. Jeremiah understood something. And he also, Jeremiah's life was a life that was preaching and he's called the weeping prophet. And the book of Lamentations is, is uh, Jeremiah lamenting over the sin of Israel and God's people. And over and over again, his warning is, repent, repent. Repent, turn back to God. We're going to talk about Micah one night. And Micah, uh, is another one of those, he's a, considered a minor prophet because the book is so short, but Micah speaks uh, a message of judgment of God and blessings of God. Over and over again, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Yes, we already stood condemned before Jesus came. And Jesus did not come to condemn us. He came to save us. And it's this message that is the saving message of the gospel. Psalms 38 verse 4, the psalmist says, For mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I want to ask you tonight and be honest in your mind. Don't raise your hand. Don't. This is all for you and your inward introspection. Have you ever felt like that your sins were just too heavy to bear? I want to tell you, I have. I have. And this is exactly what David is saying. They are a burden too heavy for me. You know why they're a burden too heavy for you? Because you're guilty. It's not a matter of could you be guilty? Should you be put on trial for the failure of sin? It's a fact. We are guilty before God, and this burden of sin becomes so heavy for us, we think, how in the world can I bear it? Where we get confused oftentimes is we think that guilt is an emotion. Guilt is not an emotion. We are guilty because we have transgressed the law of the Creator. And whether or not we have the emotion that oftentimes accompanies guilt does not relinquish the fact that we are guilty and that we stand condemned. The hardened criminal out here may not feel any pain for the sins that he does. He may not have any sadness at what he does. I'm told that there are people that can take a life and lay down and sleep that night and never, never have any remiss about it at all. And I believe it. I believe there are people like that. But the fact that you have no emotion with it doesn't change the fact whether or not you're guilty. A hardened criminal could stand before the judge and could laugh at the sentence, but it doesn't change the fact that he's guilty. So guilt is not an emotion. It is a fact. We are guilty. 
We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have transgressed the creator of heaven and earth. Psalm 38, 4 says, For mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They're just too heavy for me. Oh, yeah. And the reason why is because we are guilty. Most of the time we feel guilty because we are guilty. And that's why we get the feeling of guilt. And why the conscience that our parents helped instill within us, it says we are guilty. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of the greatest truths of the New Testament. The grace of God reaches down while you were still a sinner. Still condemned. Away from him and he died for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In order for this guilt thing to be taken care of completely, there is a process that has to happen. One of them is we have to come to a realization of our guilt. And that's why I've spent the amount of time that I've spent thus far. If you're here this evening and you've never realized your guilt, now's the time to realize it. But realize it not as an emotion. Just because you may not have an emotion against what you've done, and maybe you even feel justified in some things in your life that you know deep down are wrong, but you think, I am justified in doing that. A realization has to occur. Hebrews 10 and 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers therein too perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. The conscience of sin that he's talking about is understanding that they are no longer guilty of those sins. Not the fact that they haven't committed the sins. But legally they are not bound to those sins because of the sacrifice that God has given of Jesus Christ. So he says if these uh, sacrifices of bulls and goats and calves and the blood of animals could have sufficed, then they would have realized that they are free from this sin, that their conscience would have been purged from those things, and they would have ceased to offer the sacrifices. We have to realize our guilt because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 makes a statement that you and I need to understand, and I want to spend just a little time with it this evening. Paul states, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul makes a distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. There is such a thing that is godly sorrow that will work toward salvation. And this sorrow, I don't believe he's talking about as an emotion, but it's more of a realization and a coming to grips with what is actually going on. The sorrow of the world, he said, worketh death. Why is the sorrow of the world worketh death? Well, the things of the world will cause you to sorrow. The sins of the world will cause you to sorrow. There's not a happy dope, uh, dope addict. There's no one that's happy that has to get up and drink a pint of whiskey a week. They're not happy with that. Trust me. No one is happy that's enslaved to these sins. As a matter of fact, it is a sorrowful life, and they will tell you that it's a sorrowful life. They are trapped, and many of them don't know how to get out of it. The people that have committed heinous crimes, and they're in prison for the rest of their life, they all would like to be out of prison. They'd like to have their freedom reinstituted. They're not living a happy life. 
That's worldly sorrow. And I want to tell you this evening, if you're living your life for the flesh, you will reap worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow will simply lead you to death or this separation from God eternally. However, godly sorrow has the opposite effect. Godly sorrow will lead you to Christ. And leading you to Christ then will lead you to life. Luke 22 verse 61 says that the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. We see emotion in this verse, but we see more than emotion. We see godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produced this repentance that led to tears. I don't believe that everyone that experiences godly sorrow has to weep. Don't misunderstand me. I think oftentimes that's the case. But the godly sorrow is much better. Here Peter said that he would die with the Lord. He said, I'll live for you, I'll die for you. Though all men deny you, I won't do it. I'll stay with you, Lord. And then before the cock crows three times, Peter denies him three times. And in this denial, Peter looked and he saw Jesus. I wonder what he saw when he looked at the face of Jesus. Many of us have longed to look upon the face of Jesus. Can you imagine being able to look upon the face of Jesus? And put yourself in Peter's place. To look upon the face of Jesus after he's gone through a terrible mock trial where he's bleeding and all the blood and, and he's standing there with a crown of thorns that's been crushed down on his head. And his back has been torn to shreds and Peter looks upon the face of Jesus. Wonder what he saw. Peter remembered scripture says the word of the Lord, when he turned and he looked. I'll tell you, that's one thing that looking upon the face of Jesus will do for you. And you can look at the face of Jesus metaphorically through his word and through the eye of faith. You can draw near to him through the word and through the eye of faith. And you can be in his presence through the word and through the eye of faith. The question is, what will you remember? The angels of the seraphims and the angels that stood in Isaiah's uh, vision, when they saw the Lord, all they could say is bowed out and all they could say would be holy, holy. You and I, when we look upon the face of Jesus, we see, I believe, sorrow. I want to ask you, have you ever disappointed your family member to the point that you saw sorrow in their face? I have. Have you ever disappointed them to the point that you could see the pain that they were experiencing and going through? I have. And what did the, how did that affect you? Would it happen? Would, would, you, would you remember anything? Would you remember the better days? The days when everything was wonderful with your family member? I think Peter remembered. I think he remembered a number of things, but I also know that he remembered what the Lord said to him. There's a story that goes back to World War II. It's been told many times, and it's told as a true story, and I believe it to be a true story. This young boy was drafted into the Army, as was common in World War II. 
And his daddy took him down after the basic and he's going to be shipped off to Germany to fight the Germans in World War II and possibly never return home. And his daddy was watching him get on that boat and that ship to sail off to that other country to fight and to possibly die. And the last, question, the last statement that his father made to his son was, Remember, son, whose child you are. We would do well if we could be like Peter and we could remember in our life and remember whose child we are. The father was saying, don't go over there, son, and disappoint me. You're carrying my name over there. Don't go over there and disappoint me. Remember whose child you are. We would do well if we could remember whose children we are. Peter remembered. And the scripture says he wept bitterly. Why? Because he disappointed the Lord. I submit to you this evening, that's what godly sorrow is. And until we can come to godly sorrow... It will never work in our life repentance. One of our biggest issues personally is not experiencing this godly sorrow, therefore never repenting. And repentance is a change. I want to tell you, after Peter repented, he could have taken the same steps that Judas took. Judas experienced something else. I believe Judas experienced shame. Peter experienced godly sorrow. Judas was ashamed. We'll talk about shame in just a minute in closing because I want you to deal with that too. But first, I want you to deal with the fact that you're guilty. And there should be a godly sorrow in our life if we've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't know him and we haven't given our life to him, you should have a godly sorrow because this godly sorrow is real. We have disappointed the creator of life. Peter's not the only one that ever experienced that. David did too. David in Psalm 6 verse 6 says, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Why, David? Well, look at Psalm 51 verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Godly sorrow results from an awareness of sin against the maker of the universe. Not only are we aware of it, but it strikes a chord in our heart that says, I stand condemned before God. I've sat in Bible study after Bible study, and one of the first questions I will ask anymore, if you died tonight, where would you go? What would be your destiny? I've had, I, I can't tell you the number of people that will say, I'd go to hell. That awareness will create a change in people's life. But until we can face our position in God, as Peter did, what did Peter have to face? I failed Jesus. I failed him. And he sees me. And I've hurt him. Judas, on the other hand, says, I've shamed myself. 
I can't live it down. I'll go hang myself. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's godly sorrow. Paul had to experience this in order for him to know Jesus Christ and to know uh, the forgiveness of sins. There is such a thing as shame. They are kin, shame and godly sorrow, but they're not the same. They're different. Many people confuse guilt with shame and shame with guilt. Oftentimes when they talk about I'm guilty, they're really saying I'm ashamed. And I believe it is a false guilt. It is something that will lie to you. False guilt has nothing to do with what's true and accurate, nor is it related to true repentance. The number of people that are uh, that ha incarcerated are living in the gutter, that have, have destroyed their homes, many of them are experiencing shame. They don't want to look at somebody in the eye. They're ashamed of what they've done and how they've lived. And all of us can look at our life and we can feel this shame and say, look at what I've done. Look at how I've lived. All of us can do that. But unless it produces godly sorrow, all we've done is focus the attention upon ourselves. It has nothing to do with true repentance. I could tell you over and over the number of cases I've seen where there was a response to the gospel when it appeared that shame was the driving force rather than godly sorrow. I want us to understand the difference. Most of what we call guilt is really shame. Guilt says, I've sinned against God. I'll face that. Since I've sinned against God, I'm guilty. Since I'm guilty, I stand condemned before God. Shame says, and an author puts it this way, and I found this quote, it's not mine, and I think it's good. It says, that's why you need to hide. Shame says, hide. Shame says, you're no good. Have you ever heard the person say, well, if I went to church, the building would fall in. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that. And I can tell you I've heard people say, you don't want me there. You don't want me there. Oh, you act like you do, but you really don't want me there. And what they're saying is, you're no, I'm no good. That's shame. Shame says, you deserve to live in darkness. Come with me and I'll lead the way. And shame leads people to live in darkness. Because shame is a hard taskmaster. We end up being like this hamster on a wheel. We run and we run and we run and we try self-improvement in our life and we go nowhere. We make New Year's resolutions every year. We make resolutions, we're going to stop something and we're going to do better. And we make these resolutions. Why are, we, why are we doing that? Is it because of godly sorrow or is it because of shame? So we end up running on this wheel over and over again. And shame creates this hard task, bastard. Never pleased, never satisfied. After all, if you start doing that, when does the self-improvement stop? Just how good can you get? Another chore to fulfill, another person to please. People with this type of guilt, of shame, seem to think that they have to go through life without criticism. False guilt is more about pleasing people than God. 
Robin and I are in the middle of a counseling session with a sweet young couple, and the woman is telling me and Robin all the time that I just want to please. I just want to please. I want to please. I want to make my husband happy. I, I, I carry food to seven different families in the community every night. I'm out till 11 o'clock, and I really enjoy the feedback that I get from that. <laughs> and you do. And I, saw, I told her, I said, what's so good for you? That is a good thing to be so benevolent. But what, what is enough enough? And are you going to live your life always trying to please somebody, trying to be better, and never attaining the goal of this? Because after all, the goal always changes when you're trying to please people. I worked for a boss for 28 years, and I suppose, and I say bosses, bosses, but I worked for these bosses, and it was more like, what have you done for me lately? I don't care what you did last week. What are you doing for me now? And many people approach their Christian life after that manner, and they live in shame their entire life. It has nothing to do with guilt. Guilt says I'm guilty before God. I have transgressed his commandment. David felt so guilty, he ends up saying I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. His guilt and his uh, a violation of God's commandments was to that point in his life. And it was only then when he could come to that point of realization of his sin against God is that he could change. And your change will never happen because it's never true repentance if it's a repentance of shame. A repentance of godly sorrow worketh salvation. This false guilt of this shame, it consumes our thinking. It prevents us from seeing our relationship with God at all, and it places heavy burdens on our back. And then we'll come into church and we'll quote Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come unto me, all you that are laboring and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest from what? Rest from what? Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that God has work for you to do. Work is a good thing. So it can't be the work. Come to work in my vineyard, Jesus says in his parable. Come to work in the vineyard. Laborers are few, the harvest is plentiful. Rest from what? It's not work. If you've come to church and you've come to Christianity to cease from work, I think you've got a poor motive. It's not rest from that. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden, my burden is light. Heaviest burden that you can carry is one of guilt and shame. Shame is one that focuses upon other people. Guilt focuses upon God. God will take your guilt away from you. Shame will only be magnified through your disappointments with other people. Look at the contrast quickly. A taskmaster that is never satisfied with shame. Godly sorrow provides a path to have our sins forgiven. False guilt robs us of our relationship. With God. Godly sorrow sets boundaries in our lives where we can have a relationship with God. False guilt provides misery, judges inaccurately. Godly sorrow will change us. False guilt creates abusive religions. Godly sorrow leads us to freedom. Closing. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from what? 
John 8, 36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Free from what? I see, I see many people approach their Christian life in anything but freedom. Free from what? Number one, condemnation. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. We stand condemned. Jesus says, I'll set you free of that condemnation. You'll be free indeed. You're not condemned. If you're not condemned, that means you're not guilty anymore. So therefore, you're justified. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you can't redeem yourself, but Jesus certainly can redeem you. And you could be free of condemnation. Free of the law of sin and death. Free of the law of sin and death. You know what the law of sin and death is? It's a law. Paul states it. The law of sin and death is this. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The law of sin and death says when you sin, you're condemned to die. Condemnation. The moment you sinned the first time, you stood condemned. Free from the law of sin and death then, Paul states in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Notice what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of Christ hath made me free. Hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Godly sorrow will lead you to a changed heart, a change of mind, which will lead you to Christ, which will lead you to freedom. 1 John 3 and 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Oftentimes our shame condemns us. We think everybody is looking at us and we think everybody is judging us and we think everybody is doing all of those things and we stand condemned. But Jesus said through the Holy Spirit, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. So how do we deal with this guilt? We deal with this guilt in 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first reckoning with sin has to be that we understand that we are in condemnation and we are in condemnation because we have sinned against God. One thing that I've found in, in my life that as long as I try to cover up my sin, that sin holds a power over me. It's true. Sin only has power over you as long as it's kept in the darkness. When sin is brought out into the light, it loses its power over you. And God tells us that if we will confess our sins, and this godly sorrow brings us to this confession as David, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Somebody says, I, don't, I never have understood that. How can David say, against thee and thee only have I sinned when he has taken another man's wife and he had a man murdered? He's sinned against that whole family and that whole generation. How can he do that? Well, I want to tell you something. You did not write the law of God, and I didn't either. It is God's law. And even though David transgressed terribly against Uriah and Bathsheba and all of their family, even though there was great pain and suffering in it, who he really transgressed against and he sinned against 
was God and so do you. You're not the lawgiver and I'm not either and no one else is but God. So when we can come to grips that our sin is one that is so great, it's much greater than me sinning against my wife. I've sinned against my God. And I'm willing to confess it. And I can bear it. Because after all, the shame leaves too with this confession. We have to deal with shame all in our life. I'm amazed at how some people are capable of doing it better than others. They're willing to remind themselves that God has already dealt with their guilt. I want to tell you, God's already dealt with your guilt. He's dealt with it. He gave Jesus to die for you. Psalm 103 verse 10 says that he hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. The next time that you feel shame in your life, you remind yourself and you remind those around you my sins are as far as the east is from the west because God has not dealt with me according to my sins. If he had, the condemnation and the judgment would have already been passed and I would be lost. If you're here this evening and you've never dealt with your sin, and you've never dealt with this fact that you have sinned against God, if you die in your sin... You stand condemned. We all do. If we die in our sin and we don't die in Jesus. Tonight you have the opportunity to die in Jesus. A death and a burial and a resurrection that is called baptism. To participate in his death. In his burial, in his resurrection. To have the godly sorrow that will lead us to Jesus, that leads us to salvation. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.